KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome to Comic-Con International. The exhibit hall is now open to attendees. Have a great Comic-Con. Welcome back to the new and improved Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. The podcast has been on a quarantine break, but I decided that July, the month when Comic-Con returns for a second online convention, would be a great time for Cinema Junkie to make a comeback. My first guest is someone who not only fits the spirit of Comic-Con, but who's also a longtime friend and frequent Cinema Junkie guest. And that's Arnold T. Blumberg, a.k.a. Doctor of the Dead. We've bonded over zombies in the past, and now I want to tap into a different side of his expertise to talk about comic book movies. There's something to be said for the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they started building was just so incredibly successful and cohesive and fascinating. I must have absolute silence. Excelsior! There'd be no Marvel without its creative leader, Stan Lee, who made a lot of kids like Blumberg fall in love with comics. Blumberg's passion for pop culture led him to create a course on zombies, and then he taught the first college class on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But before we talk about comic book movies, I need to take one quick break. To take us into this break... Here's a new part of the podcast called Share Your Addiction, where people get to rave about something they love about movies for 60 seconds. And there's no better person to start this segment off than Dragpool. You may have seen the 7'5 red mutate drag queen at Comic-Con recruiting for her extra force. And there's one thing she has an excess of, and that's opinions. So take us into the break, Dragpool. Well, hello, Cinema Junkies Landia. <laughs> I've been instructed to tell you what my Marvel addiction is. <laughs> it's a little known film, <laughs> not really, called Logan. You know, it got a lot of fanfare when it first came out, and then I think it just kind of died away. But it's an incredible drama instead of a regular superhero movie. And most of that is due to the incredible acting relationship of Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman. It was both somber and intriguing and suspenseful, and it's a little bit like cutting through all that contrived monologue that happens when a villain tries to explain their motivations to the hero, giving him just enough time to escape. Anyway, check it out if you haven't seen it in a while. Logan, give it some love. Thank you, Dragpool. If you have an addiction that you'd like to share, then head on over to the Cinema Junkie podcast page at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie for more info. And when we come back, Blumberg explains how comic book movies help with critical thinking. So stay tuned. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. 
Toyota. Let's go places. So, Comic-Con is going to be later this month in a second virtual edition, and comic books and comic book movies are at the heart of this geeky gathering. Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg has the distinction of teaching the first-of-its-kind course on the Marvel Cinematic Universe back in 2015 at the University of Baltimore. The class was called Media Genres, Media Marvels. So, Arnold, what did the course description for this class say? Well, it grew out of the similar course that I had already been doing for years on the zombie genre. That was the first time I had done sort of a genre-specific course AUB, and that had been very successful. So a few years into that, I came to them with Media Marvels. I thought, okay, and I have to give credit, by the way. One, a colleague and friend of mine goes way back. He's a filmmaker. Uh, he's in production. He did a, a movie in the Baltimore area called My Boring Zombie Apocalypse. His name is Kevin Perkins. And it was actually Kevin who first said to me, I think, on like a social media chat, you should pitch them doing a course on the MCU also. And I thought, well, I think they would probably go for it at this point because the zombie course is doing well. And it was basically the same basic structure. In some ways, it was even easier to set up because at that point, we were just getting up to Age of Ultron when I did it. Hello, I am Jarvis. You are Ultron, a global peacekeeping initiative designed by Mr. Stark. This feels wrong. I'm a peacekeeping program created to help the Avengers. I don't get it. The mission. G give me a second. Peace in our time. Peace in our time. That is too much. No. So it wound up fitting perfectly into basically a 16-week semester of giving them the historical background of Marvel in the comic world, where the characters come from, a little bit of grounding in mythology and, and heroic literature of the past, and then we started going through every film from Iron Man up to the present, and the semester ended with everybody going to the Senator Theater for a screening of Age of Ultron. It was great. Well, that sounds perfect. And I do have to say that Kevin Perkins blew my brains out as a zombie when I went to appear in his film for an NPR story I did on zombies. So he's he's got quite a far reach into the undead, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so when you set up this course, what was the response like from both students and administrators? Uh, university itself was already, certainly the department that handled the media literacy stuff, they understood where I was coming from and where the benefit was in using a genre as a lens for talking about anything, socially, culturally, and otherwise. So that part was fine, and they were totally receptive to that. As far as the students were concerned, the interest was immediate, as you might expect. But what I did find right out of the gate on that one, from what I can remember, was that in some respects, I think it worked even better, quicker, than the zombie course did in the sense that it felt like everybody clicked in immediately to the idea that we're not just doing this frivolously. Attention all SHIELD agents, this is Steve Rogers. We're not just sitting here talking about the films, we're going to look at them in a substantial way and try to figure out you know, what they mean, what they're reflecting, and it worked really well. I know I'm asking a lot, but the price of freedom is high, it always has been. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if I'm the only one, then so be it. 
but I'm willing to bet I'm not. So what kind of public response did you deal with? The response publicly was exactly what you'd think it would be. (laughs) As far as I'm concerned, the people that start attacking it for, oh, is this what our tax dollars are going for? Oh, this is why American children are falling behind. Oh, that... That's just the kind of just complete willful ignorance that has led to such an incredible lack of critical thinking and the kind of media literacy we desperately need, especially in a world where organizations are doing everything within their power to manipulate people into believing falsehoods. And of course, they very well know how critical thinking and media literacy works. They're not foolish about it. They just want to make sure everybody else is. So these courses are not just a fun way of teaching students, they're vital. And actually, they're vital for much younger. They shouldn't be teaching these just in colleges. We should be teaching media literacy from the beginning, and we don't. But apart from the usual kind of garbage you get online about, you know, why would people waste a semester with that? Actually, the response was still, for the most part, pretty nice. I mean, one of the things about a class like this that I think is great is that so often you'll get students who kind of glaze over at the idea of classes that have a very kind of academic sound to them. And to take something that they already have an inherent interest in just seems like a great way to capture their interest and get them to come to class very eagerly. And it seems like a gateway to teaching that you know, teachers should embrace and then the public should appreciate. Absolutely. That's the fundamental thing that's at work there is you already have like a steep slope at times to get kids engaged and particularly to get them involved in conversation about all sorts of things, whether that's race and gender and other politics and cultural issues and social issues. And if they're already excited about the fact that they get to talk about things they love, the one thing you find out pretty quickly is their discussion about those things is usually not very empty. It's usually very substantial. I remember like the zombie class, Walking Dead had just debuted. It was literally the first season of Walking Dead when we first started that class. And naturally, one of the first things I did was, let's watch the show every week and we'll talk about it. And there was that one particular episode that really hit one of those early points. I mean, not subtly, where they had the women were doing the laundry at the, like, the river's edge. I'm beginning to question the division of labor here. Can someone explain to me how the women wound up doing all the head of McDaniel work? The world ended. Didn't you get the memo? It's just the way it is. I do miss my Maytag. It was like a whole episode about, is this what we're going to do? Are we going to devolve back to these ridiculous gender roles for things? And the conversation in the class after that episode wasn't like, oh, wasn't the zombie thing cool? Or that was a fun part, but an incredibly deep and charged and very informed discussion about everybody's opinion about that. And that's why you do something like this. Can you imagine trying to get those kids to talk about things like that without that entryway? I mean, that's... That's how it works. I miss my vibrator. Oh. Oh, God. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And what was it that made you decide to tackle Marvel and not DC? Was it strictly because of what films were coming out at that particular moment? 
Well, partly. I mean, I'm, I was always a Marvel kid. So, I mean, I've certainly read my share of DC stuff, and I'm certainly, in some respects, because of my other work, having worked at uh, the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, and, and I'm certainly very familiar with DC stuff, but Marvel has always been more emotionally I'm connected. I knew I could speak to that material with a, with a conviction that I probably couldn't necessarily give as much to the DC. Although I've taught courses in superhero mythology too and used plenty of Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, all that kind of stuff because it's vitally important for that part of the history of it all. And those characters are wonderful. But, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they started building was just so incredibly successful and cohesive and fascinating. And uh, DC has continued to demonstrate that when it comes to comic book movies, Marvel seems to be the only one that really knows how to make it work. And uh, I'll be happy to, to continue to defend that particular perspective on it. But so it was a little personal. It was also a little bit, this is a nice single narrative through line we can look at through a whole semester. Okay, let's backtrack a little bit, because I want you to tell me how you first got interested in comics. You describe yourself as a Marvel kid. So what was it about the Marvel comics that really attracted you or appealed to you more than the DC ones? Well, I mean, some of it, in a certain respect, might just be those are the things I encountered first. Although when I look back at like the earliest comics I had as a kid, which of course I still have, I, I had picked up the odd Superman or Batman off the stand, and I don't know. I mean, sometimes there's a bit of, like, alchemy at work there where you don't know. I started off with real little reading Harvey comics. It was like Casper, Richie Rich, that kind of thing. The first time I can remember reading Marvel was Spidey Super Stories, which was the title they were doing at the time that was a Spider-Man series aimed particularly at younger readers. And uh, I quickly jumped from that right to the regular Amazing Spider-Man title, and from there, just expanded to everything. And I just want to play a quick clip of Marvel Stanley addressing this at Comic-Con. There was one I loved. I don't know if you remember this. I think it was the Fantastic Four. They were in a ball game or something, and there were a lot of press photographers. So I told, I guess it was Jack Kirby, I told him to draw Peter Parker in the background with a camera. And we made no mention of it. He was just in the panel. And we got about a million letters saying, we saw Peter Parker at the game, that's terrific. And it made it seem as if these are real characters who live in the same world and occasionally they get together. And, and that was something I got a big kick out of. And I loved those characters and they just, they felt right to me and I liked the stories and I would occasionally look at something from DC, but there was never a sense of cohesion to that and the idea that I was visiting the same world as I got from Marvel. And in some respects, that is the same thing that's happening with the movies now as well. Comic book adaptations are nothing new. So quite soon after Superman appeared in the first comic book in 1938, there were Superman cartoons and later a Superman TV show. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. 
And then in the 1960s, you have one of my favorites, which was the Batman TV show and movie. Emergency. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy superlatives, Batman. It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. So if we're sticking to the two big comic book publishers of DC and Marvel, DC definitely got the ball rolling early on in expanding from print to other media. So what do you think led to DC getting out of the gate faster on this? Well, I mean, if you look back at the history of it all, the guys who were involved in the business end of DC, of national periodicals from the beginning, were keenly aware of the potential value of the properties they had. And for instance, with Superman, they immediately set up an incorporated company that was devoted expressly to promoting and merchandising and doing everything they could to produce Superman content. And I mean, within a year of the Action Comics number one in his debut, you had the radio show, you had a strip in the newspapers, there was a club, the Superman Tim Club, there were other, there was Superman of America Club where they would get kids to write in and you could get, you know, the usual assortment of rings or membership cards. And all of this was a very concerted effort to build a brand in a way that these people already knew how to do and had partnerships with people to do. And they were the first ones to really start doing these superhero comics. So you have the other characters show up and Batman and Wonder Woman and the other characters in the Justice Society. And then suddenly there's a Justice Society club. And so they had the benefit of being there first and a chance to exploit that in a variety of ways. It's interesting, though, that as time goes by, and then eventually you get to the 1960s and you see what Marvel does, you see that a lot of Marvel's success comes from an understanding of a, a difference in tone that speaks to an, a different audience and that enabled them to take things in a different way. But it's certainly true that for a very long time, DC, I mean, if you want to look at it as a competition, which I guess in some sense it is, I mean, marketing-wise, they definitely had the upper hand for a long time in terms of adapting their characters and promoting their characters. And I mean, for a while, DC owned feature films and Marvel was stuck on television with stuff that was arguably at best okay and not really ever really uh, the best adaptation of those characters. And then things definitely turned in the other direction later on. And when do you see Marvel finally taking off? I know for me, the film Blade, which was not only a comic book movie, but it was an R-rated comic book movie, kind of stands out as the first Marvel film that I really took notice of. The world you live in is just a sugar-coated topping. There is another world beneath it, the real world. And if you want to survive it, you better learn to pull the trigger. But what do you see as kind of that turning point for Marvel when they started launching this franchise? Yeah, I mean, you're right. It definitely happened before Iron Man, at least in a in the sense of educating the movie-going audience about what they might find interesting and what could be relatable. Okay, let's take a quick moment to listen to Marvel's Stan Lee on this idea of making characters more relatable. I spoke to the late comics creator at Comic-Con when Blade came out. Before Marvel started, 
any superhero might be walking down the street and see a 12-foot-tall monster coming toward him with purple skin and a tail and eight arms breathing fire. And the character would have said something like, oh, there's a monster from another world. I'd better catch him before he destroys the city. Now, if one of our Marvel characters saw the same monster, I would like to think Spider-Man would say, who's the nut in the Halloween getup? I wonder what he's advertising. So for instance, you go back and after the era of the serials and after the era of the 70s TV shows and Marvel, you have DC doing Christopher Reeve Superman movies and then Batman with Tim Burton and Michael Keaton as Batman. And it seemed like they've really got it. And then as that era starts to continue on, it's sequels and sequels and there's diminishing returns. And when you get to Blade, there's a turning point there. And the real transition, I think, in a very big way is X-Men and Spider-Man movies coming out in the early 2000s. Cool Spidey outfit. It gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. And then by the time you get to Iron Man, the notion of continuing one single narrative through line, one universe you can follow, was the brilliance of the Marvel Studios people, specifically those people, you know, Kevin Feige and all the people involved in developing that, that said, let's actually try to replicate the experience of being a Marvel Comics fan, which is you know when you pick up a comic that Spider-Man might turn up in the Avengers, or Thor might go over and help Captain America in his own title, and that kind of synergy was an incredible opportunity. Thor, you gotta try and bottleneck that portal. Slow him down. You got the lightning. Light the bastards up. You and me, we stay here on the ground. We keep the fighting here. And Hulk, <sighs> smash. Even though they still didn't have the rights to some of their main characters, they gave it a shot anyway, and that was key. And if Warner Brothers, Time Warner, had come up with the idea of, you know what would be really good? A Christopher Reeve, Michael Keaton movie, which we all used to joke about for years. Where's the world's finest movie? And they didn't do it, or they couldn't work it out, or it just didn't occur to anybody. And for whatever reason, they never got to build that kind of synergy. And that was, I think, a potential misstep that enabled Marvel to say, we, we won't just give you adventures with these characters. We can give you an entire universe to immerse yourself in. Assemble. Okay, I need to take one last break. And to take us into this break, there's something new called cold turkey. This is where people get 60 seconds to go off on something that just needs to stop. We just need to quit cold turkey. So let's hear what's ticking off Dragpool about comic book movies. Well, hello, Cinema Junkies Landia. <laughs> I've been asked to talk about what parts of the Marvel Universe I think we can get rid of. It's not really about the Marvel Universe in general. It's about how people decide if you're a true fan or not, if you know all the minutiae about every single character in every single universe. I don't, and I still consider myself a fan. So can we normalize just loving something a whole lot with having to know all of the details and still call those folks fans too? I can't name all the Infinity Stones. I don't even know all of their colors, but I still love me some Thanos.
<laughs> Thank you, Dragpool, for your sassy opinions. I also want to take a moment to remind people that there is another new addition to Cinema Junkie, and that is a YouTube video called Geeky Gourmet. And this is where I'll be providing instructions, demonstrations, and more about how to make themed foods and drinks to go with your movies. So for this episode, you can head on over to the KPBS YouTube channel, and the Geeky Gourmet will show you how to make comic book cookies that go pop, bang, and maybe even kapow. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. So Arnold, let's talk about this Marvel universe that they created, kicked off with Iron Man, and there was really this overarching sense of one narrative kind of being threaded through all these different movies. So what do you think has defined this Marvel universe and, and made it so successful and popular? As much as I enjoy them, there's also plenty of reasons to say that they're flawed. So for one thing, they weren't as great out of the gate as people remember. For one thing, they were floundering quite a bit early on to create the connectivity that now seems to almost come you know, second nature to them. For instance, everybody remembers there was the bit about Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark appearing at the end of the Hulk that didn't quite jibe with, they had to like backtrack and Iron Man 2 was a fix for some of these things, continuity. They had to work on this for a while and they, they got there. I would argue that another major reason for the success was just one single thing, which was the casting of Robert Downey Jr. I am Iron Man. Now looking back, I am certainly one that has not only changed my opinion, but I think added a lot of maybe more complexity in my initial opinion of the fact that when you really look at it, however, the entire arc of his character through all these films is arguably the arc of the biggest villain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. No offense, but I don't play well with others. Big man in a suit of armor. Take that away, what are you? Uh, genius, billionaire, playboy, philanthropist. <laughs> He's a horrible, horrible person. <laughs> Tony Stark is just a horrible person. And although there's lip service paid to his supposed various steps of redemption, he never actually stops being an arms manufacturer. His goal, for instance, in the first film of trying to redeem himself from a lifetime of arms manufacturing is to build the most effective weapon system in the world and wear it himself. I mean, in terms of like poster boy for white privilege, I think you got Tony Stark. But the fact is, regardless of whether you see the character as a villain or a hero or an anti-hero, it doesn't really matter on the, on the level of popularity because in terms of success, the argument can be made that it was him as an actor, it was that choice that gave them the most perfect pairing of an actor with a character that could introduce people to that world. And from that point on, one of the things I would argue has always been one of their greatest strengths is their casting. So ain't all people your people? I am not king of all people. I am king of Wakanda. They always seem to come up with the perfect person for everything, even if that person didn't seem like the one you would have picked initially. And that, I think, has just been an element of genius in just the production side of it. They know how to pick people that will draw people in and embody these characters. And 
I'd argue that that's one of many things that DC is struggling with right now with a lot of the things they do. Now, when you were teaching your class, uh, you discussed how films can films like this, films like the Marvel Universe, can provide a fantasy framework to explore contemporary issues like the nature of heroism, about great responsibilities that come with wielding great power, and our willingness to trade freedom for security. So what kind of issue or how did you talk about some of these issues in the class and, and how did students respond? Well, it, it wasn't as much work to get to those points in that as we were watching the movies, I would turn to the students to find out what do you think? You know, what do you think this character is doing? Why this? How it represents? Of course, the core movie, the reason why I did the course in the first place, the one that was sort of the, the pitch, was Winter Soldier. These new long-range precision guns can eliminate a thousand hostiles a minute. The satellites can read a terrorist's DNA he steps outside his spider hole. Because my argument was, and that's where you mentioned the thing about freedom for, you know, for security, there's so much in that movie that's like they deal with drone strikes, they deal with the surveillance state, you know, the freedom for security issue. After New York, I convinced the World Security Council we needed a quantum surge in threat analysis. For once, we're way ahead of the curve. At this point in things for Marvel, all they had to do was make a really cool, adventurous Captain America movie. They did not have to do anything else. And yet, what they wound up doing was a movie that actually had some things to say in and around all the adventure and excitement. And it demonstrated that these movies operate on different levels. It's not just a frivolous adventure. You can also incorporate these things and make something out of that. This isn't freedom. This is fear. S.H.I.E.L.D. takes the world as it is, not as we'd like it to be. It's getting damn near past time for you to get with that program, Cap. Don't hold your breath. And when we would talk about it in class, it really didn't take much work to get to that. And when we were in the classroom, everybody would get really energized, and particularly if they enjoyed it, and sometimes particularly if they didn't, they would have things to say about why that was, and conversation would go from there. Well, in these films, even though they're entertaining, they also have a way of raising issues about ethics, morality, race, gender, class. And how did you see Marvel films kind of touching on those? Everybody who has helped to craft these movies has brought themselves to it. They can't not reflect all the various things going on in our country and our culture in the time when they're made. For example, in Marvel, they're as guilty as anyone else in this culture as well of having flaws of, of incorrectly or improperly or inappropriately representing some things because they are reflecting the culture in which they're made. So like, for example, it's not all positive, but it's also can be very instructive and telling about where we are. So like, for example, like we're just now getting to the point where the Black Widow movie is coming out and Captain Marvel came out and there's a sequel to that. But it's like it took this long before we had women in lead roles in, in, in this. And it's taken until phase four before we gonna, we're going to have an Asian lead in one of these. And, and the Black Panther movies and the sadness of losing Chadwick Boseman. But we had that. But why did it take that long? It's like there are no easy answers because these are problems. And even Marvel is not immune to these kind of problems. Marvel is still a very white story. And it's a very male story. And 
This goes all the way back to the source material and to the people that created it and to the comics that preceded it. And it's important at the very least that if there are things that are bad about these movies, that's also worth talking about. And maybe that gets people thinking about how can you make it better. So there are ways that these movies can be instructive and educational as much for the things they're doing wrong as for the things that they might deliberately or sort of tangentially trying to communicate that are good. That's also, I feel, part of the importance of media literacy is you got to look at these things and not feel like you're a fan. Just come at it with your own perspective and see it for what it is. And would you have any closing words about Marvel comic movies, something that you want to leave people thinking about? Well, like I said early on, these are characters that I always felt like emotionally connected to. So anything I've said through the course of this whole thing, I certainly expect everybody to understand is through the biased lens of someone who grew up with these characters. I can't possibly evaluate the Marvel material in a way that's truly objective. I can only offer my perspective on it. But I think that overall, they're an extraordinary experiment in storytelling that it would be very interesting to see done in a variety of different ways, which we are seeing happen, sometimes good, sometimes bad. It's an amazing thing to be able to craft an entire universe, but I would like to see it as just the beginning of how we can tell stories in this kind of cohesive and ongoing and complex way, and it would be fun to see that happen with a much wider range of voices than we currently have. I've been speaking with Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. And Arnold, remind people where they can find you on social media and where to listen to your podcast. Absolutely. You can berate me about all of my Marvel and DC opinions on Twitter at Doctor of the Dead. And if you want to listen to my podcast... My wife Natalie and I talk about everything from classic horror and science fiction in the 50s all the way up to the latest films on Ghouls in the House. The only ghoul in the house is you. Thanks, Arnold, for that marvelous chat. Next time on Cinema Junkie, there'll be an episode entitled Crew Call. This is where I talk to people about their jobs in the entertainment industry. And for the next edition, I'll be speaking to stunt people who make movies, and often comic book movies, kick ass. I hope you've enjoyed the new and improved Cinema Junkie. I want to thank Emily Jankowski and Rebecca Chacon for their editing assistance. And thanks to podcast producer Kinsey Moreland, as well as to all those who provided feedback on the redesign of the podcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.